This evening I would ask you to turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scriptures to Psalm 25. I have notes prepared. They were there in the foyer. If you need to grab a copy there, I will not be presenting that outline on the screen. It will not be projected, but there are notes if you care to have a copy of those. Psalm 25 this evening. If we were to read Psalm 25 as it was first written by David in the Hebrew language, we would notice that it is framed as an alphabetic acrostic. That is, each of the 22 verses in Psalm 25 begins with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Of course, the alphabet is the fundamental element of literacy and education in any language. Before one can read, they must learn the alphabet. And a common method for learning the alphabet or learning one's ABCs is to associate a letter with a word or sentence. For example, in the early days of our own country, the school book which educated generations of American youth was the New England Primer. It even predates the McGuffey readers, for those of you that are historians or educators. And children would learn their ABCs, they would learn their letters by reciting the letter and then a a word and a phrase. For example, children would learn the letter A by reciting, A is for Adam. But it wasn't only A is for Adam, it would continue with a, a sobering couplet. A is for Adam, in Adam's fall, We sinned all. If you can imagine that as part of the curriculum today in in American education. But beyond then learning their letters, they were also catechized. They were instructed in truth. And since antiquity, the use of alphabetic acrostics or other mnemonic devices or other literary devices like alliteration, we're familiar with that here, right? Alliteration. Or perhaps parallelism or even rhyme, it was used to aid in one's education and memorization. And for that reason, scholars suggest that Psalm 25 was written as a Hebrew acrostic so that it might be memorized. And so I would challenge you to memorize Psalm 25. It's 22 verses long. At the same time, an acrostic psalm like Psalm 25 is difficult to outline because it isn't necessarily arranged in logical progression. It's it's arranged in alphabetic progression. But nonetheless, some have uh, have attempted to identify a structure to Psalm 25. So Charles Spurgeon, maybe the greatest Baptist to have ever lived, he and his Treasury of David, his commentaries on the Psalms, he outlines Psalm 25 this way, and I've I've copied it for you there in the back of your notes. He suggests that Psalm 25 could be structured like this. First, a prayer. Secondly, meditation. Third, prayer. Fourth, meditation. And fifth, a prayer. Now, respectfully, I would like to do better. I don't know that I can do better than Charles Spurgeon, but I could try. There's another, a more contemporary Bible scholar has observed and proposed a different structure to Psalm 25, this alphabetic acrostic. And and you see there, if you have your notes, uh, a prayer for deliverance and guidance, prayer for guidance and forgiveness, assurance of guidance, and then prayer for forgiveness, assurance of guidance, and prayer for deliverance and protection. 
And once again, I, I'd like to try and, and do better. But here's what is clear to everyone, and Lord willing to everyone this evening, that Psalm 25 is a prayer of David to God for help. I've printed that there for you at the top of your notes. It's a prayer of David to God for help. We don't know the background. We don't know the occasion. We don't know the circumstances that precipitated the writing of this psalm. However, that's okay. In fact, its ambiguity makes its application broad. Whatever your circumstances, you can pray to God for help. Whatever my crisis, I can pray to God for help. For we need deliverance and guidance and forgiveness and protection in times of our trial and trouble. And when we need help, divine help in our distress, we can pray to God for help. And so I'd invite you to follow as I read Psalm 25, this prayer to God for help. Psalm 25, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. You are, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice and the humble he teaches in his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him and he will show them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies for they are many and they hate me with cruel hatred. Keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. Now, a reading of Psalm 25 might seem to be a blur to you. And as I read through these 22 verses, it it may have seemed like a recurring mishmash of one-liners for for David, as if David was stumbling and repeating himself in the midst of his trial and, and trouble. And so therefore, I would like to approach this psalm in a topical manner, identifying themes that are woven throughout the psalm and to bring them to bear upon us, rather than trying to present an outline of the structure of it as an alphabetic acrostic. And so I would begin with this. In times of trouble, in times of trial, in times of trial and trouble, number one, we must ask God to teach us. In times of trial 
and trouble, we must ask God to teach us. And I want us to look back again and allow me to highlight a few of these phrases. Verses four and five, show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation, on you I will wait all the day. Look at verses eight and nine. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. Look down to verse 12. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. And so when we are faced with problems that we cannot solve, Let's be honest this evening, that is the story of our lives. We go to the Lord and we ask him to teach us and to show us and to guide us. In the midst of trial and trouble, when we are confused about our circumstances, we're confounded by our circumstances, we're not sure what to do, we must ask God to teach us. I think nearly every day over the last 20 years, one of my children has asked me for help in some area of life, nearly every day. They've asked me to teach them how to, how to tie their shoe, or how to ride their bike, or how to fix something, or answer something. They have needed my help with their homework and with their problem solving, and they've sought my counsel, and they've sought my advice for everything. And apart from their moments of of pride when they refuse to ask for help, and they chose to struggle on their own, it was natural and it was common for a child to ask for help. And it ought to be our first go-to lifeline to ask God for help, to teach us in a moment of our, our need. You're familiar with James 1, verse number five. It gives us the encouragement we need. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's what David is doing in this psalm. Whatever the circumstance, whatever the occasion, however the psalm is arranged or structured, as David is building this alphabetic acrostic under inspiration of the Spirit of God, he keeps returning to that very same prayer. Lord, teach me, Lord, teach me, Lord, teach me. So in going to God during times of trial and trouble, we must ask God to teach us, number one. Secondly, in going to God, we must acknowledge to God the trials around us, number two. We must acknowledge to God the trials around us. Now, borrowing again from my parenting experience, I'm sure yours is the same, there have been many times when my children have been distressed or distraught about a matter, and so I ask them, what happened? What's wrong? Are you hurt? How can I help you? And for some irrational reason, they can't explain the situation. They they can't tell me, or maybe they won't tell me. Perhaps they're, they're hiding something. Perhaps it's their pride, or maybe they're embarrassed about a matter. And in the middle of a meltdown, they answer, it doesn't matter, I'm fine, I'll figure it out myself. Oh, really? And perhaps... We're no better than our own children. We can't figure it out ourselves. So we go to God asking him to teach us. But then ultimately, in honesty and transparency, we acknowledge the circumstance, the trial or the trouble. Look at verse number two. What's David's need? Verse number two, oh oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. 
So we can speculate here at this point uh, about David's enemies. Perhaps David's enemy in this case was the giant Goliath or maybe King Saul or maybe David's rebellious son Absalom. Maybe David's enemies were the hostile nations around him when when he was the king of Israel. It, It really doesn't matter. David is acknowledging the source of his fear and his possible shame and he describes his trial and his trouble as a trap. Like one would catch a fish or a a bird. Look at verse number 15. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the nets. Okay? In David's trial, in his trouble, he feels trapped in, in some way, shape, or form. Look at verse number 16. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Consider my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. So David's trial or trouble here in this case wasn't a singular or simple trap from verse number 15, but he was desolate and afflicted, verse 16. Look at verse 17, he was distressed. Verse 18, he was in pain. Verse verse 18 also, he was guilty of sin. And in verse 19, his enemies were many and, and the threat was cruel. And folks, when we are hurting, it is good and right to go to the Lord with our burdens and tell it like it is. Ah, but pastor, I, I, I don't like to complain. Okay, but 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast your cares upon the Lord because he cares for us. And so we go to God and we pour out our heart and we say, Lord, I've been wrongly accused. Lord, I'm not physically well. Lord, my child is wayward. Lord, I need a job. Lord, I'm overwhelmed by all that seems to be working against me right now. And God, I come to you in prayer for help. Teach me, show me, guide me. What in the world should I do regarding and give a concrete, specific acknowledgement of your trial or your trouble. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed. David comes full circle to the very same thing he said back in verse number two. Compare verse two and verse number 20. Now, what happens in times like these is that Satan will assault your heart and your mind with accusations. And Satan will charge you with your calamity being a consequence of your own sin. Look at verse seven. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. What's going on here? In the midst of David's trial and and tribulation, he's mindful Maybe he's even plagued with how he has messed up in the past. And perhaps it was a point of pride over his defeat of Goliath. We could back up even further. Perhaps it was a a point of a bitter attitude toward his older brothers that didn't think he could handle Goliath. Now it's a point of pride because he's defeated Goliath. Perhaps it's his adultery with Bathsheba or his murder of Uriah. David's sense of guilt feelings rise up back up inside of him as the wicked one throws his past sin back into his face. 
Has that ever happened to you? You're in your trial, you're in your tribulation, you are suffering some point of affliction, you feel trapped, you're distressed, and Satan will whisper in your ear and remind you of your regrets and will remind you of the skeletons in the closet and will remind you of what you've done wrong and he will suggest that what you're suffering now is a consequence of your sin. Look at verses six and seven again. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are from old. Verse seven, do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions from yesterday or last week or when I was a a youth. David wants God to remember his mercies, not his sins. David wants God to remember God's mercies, not David's sins. And God's mercies are from the beginning David's sin was from his youth. Look at verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Look at verse 16. Turn yourself to me and have mercy on me. Look at the second part of verse 18. And forgive all my sins. And so I would suggest from Psalm 25, we ask God to teach us, number one, We acknowledge to God the trials around us, that's number two, but here number three, we accept God's mercy and forgiveness toward us. We must accept God's mercy and forgiveness toward us. And folks, your trial and your trouble in life might be a natural consequence of your sin. There very well may be direct cause and effect connections that that you can identify. If you abuse illegal drugs, you will suffer long-term physical consequence. If you abuse credit cards, you may be deep in debt. If you drink and drive, you may lose your license or cause injury to another. We understand that. However, you cannot always rightly associate every calamity in your life to your own sin. That was the testimony of of Job, the story of Job. Job suffered enormous trial and trouble in his life, but it was not God's retribution toward Job for his sin at all. That was the speculation of Job's counselors, but rather quite the contrary. Nonetheless, the wicked one will perpetually accuse your conscience regarding your sin in spite of the fact that God has forgiven you And God has given mercy to you. So accept that mercy and accept accept that forgiveness from God. Now, if there is unconfessed sin in your life and the Spirit of God is convicting you regarding that, 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Proverbs 28, verse 13 promises, he who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And there is nothing more liberating and refreshing than to throw yourself on the mercy of God and enjoy the positional and the practical forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. And that's bringing the gospel to bear upon your, your, your circumstances. You say, I know that I'm suffering. I know that I'm in a difficult circumstance. Everything that could go wrong has gone wrong and I need help, but God's mercies are new every morning. Lamentation three, 
God's mercies endure forever, Psalm 136. In Daniel 9, Daniel confessed, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. Amen? God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. Okay, but then, if God is merciful toward us and has forgiven us, why are we still sinning, I'm sorry, suffering. Why are we still suffering? And that's a really common question that that we all struggle with. Our our enemies oppose us, our circumstances are crushing us, and it's like our back is against the wall. We feel threatened at every hand, even for our own survival, as I believe was the case for David. And so we pray to God for help, but yet we continue to suffer. I would suggest number four, we must apply God's character to us. Apply God's character to us. And I wanna do an exercise here this evening in which as I read through this psalm again, I want us to read with a mind toward naming and claiming the character of God. So so rather than thinking about David, Rather than thinking about David's circumstances, his trial and his trouble, I want us to think, which, which we don't even know what it is, I want us to think about David's God, all right? So in times of trouble, there's one place and one person to turn, that's the person of God. What do we learn about God in this psalm? How can we apply, that's number four, we must apply God's character to us, all right? So you follow in the scripture verses one and two, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. What does this teach us about God? God is trustworthy and faithful. Look at verse four. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. What does that teach us about, about the person of God, his character? He is our guide. Verse five, lead me in your truth and teach me you are the God of my salvation and you I wait all the day. God is our savior. Look at verses six and seven. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. He is and always has been merciful and good. That's who God is. Look at verse eight, good and upright is the Lord. God is good and upright. Verse number nine, the humble he guides in justice. He is just. Verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. He is forgiving. Look at verse 15. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Look at verse 17. The troubles of my heart have enlarged, bring me out of my distresses. He is powerful to deliver. How about verse 16? Verse 16, turn yourself to me and have mercy on me for I am desolate and afflicted. This assures us that God is accessible and merciful. Verse 18, look at my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sin. He sees, he sees our condition. He sees, he knows your trial and your trouble and he forgives. Verse 22, redeem Israel, O God, 
out of all of their troubles. What does that teach us about God? He is our redeemer. Folks, we don't need an acrostic. We don't need an alliterated outline. We don't need a complicated commentary. All we need to do is read the scripture with a mind to know God. John Kelvin explains that it is sometimes hard to be steadfast in prayer about our trials. Okay, think about this. You've prayed and you've prayed and you agonized in prayer for days, for weeks, for months, for years about your trial. Have you been there? Calvin says that sometimes it's hard to be steadfast in prayer about our trials if we don't pause and refresh ourselves by meditating on God's character. So threaded through this psalm of prayer to God for help are numerous statements about the character of God that we can apply to our circumstance. So then, number five. Well, in our trial and trouble, we must ask God to teach us. We must acknowledge to God the trials around us. We must accept God's mercy and forgiveness toward us. We must apply God's character to us. Number five. We must act out our trust in God. We must act out our trust in God. Now, at the very beginning of our study this evening, I identified the theme of God's teaching us. That was Roman numeral number one. David repeatedly asked God to teach him and to show him his ways or his paths. But here's the key. God's teaching us is not simply an information dump. That is, God's teaching us isn't simply classroom content that we learn with our head and then we recite back to him after memorizing the outline or the acrostic or the alliteration, but rather we are compelled to act upon what we have been taught. And so the paths that David references in verse four and in verse 10, see that? In verse four and verse 10, these paths that God will teach him or show him are the same paths that David referenced in Psalm 23. Lead me in the paths of righteousness. And whether we are people or sheep, the paths are trails that lead to a destination. So you, you might, in your mind's eye, you might picture the, the wagon wheel ruts on the road that the, the, the pioneers, from the pioneer days, the, the wagon trains that, that went west and, and created these ruts in the ground, even in the rock, as the west was settled That's the way, verse eight, verse nine, verse 12, the way that God teaches or shows us these paths that we must act by walking in that way. So when we find ourselves drowning in trial or trouble, we don't only listen and learn, meditate on the character of God, but there is something that we must do. One man Stephen Cole explains it this way. I've copied it for you there in the back of your notes. To walk in God's ways. And again, if you were to read Psalm 25 again, looking for this theme of the paths or the ways, to walk in God's ways includes several things as revealed in this psalm. It includes prayer. Okay, the entire psalm is a prayer. It means to wait on the Lord, verse 3, 5, and 21, because his timing is not always our timing. It means to be teachable, to grow in understanding God's truth. It includes humility, verse nine, because God gives grace to the humble, not to the proud. 
To walk in God's ways means to obey him, verse 10. It means to fear him, verse 12 and 14. It means to look to the Lord continually, verse 15. It requires walking with integrity and uprightness. I don't know your circumstance this evening. I, I certainly don't know what tomorrow might bring for any of us. I assume that we are all in some sort of trouble or we are all enduring some sort of, of trial. So what do we do? We go to God in prayer for help, as David did in Psalm 25. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven above, we come to you for help. Lord, we are needy people. We are hurting people. Lord, we feel that we are at the end of our rope. Our backs are against the wall. Lord, we don't know what to turn We need help. And so we cry out to you, we call upon you, the God of our salvation. Lord, I thank you for Psalm 25 and the honest transparency of it. And Lord, regardless of its structure or its outline, we understand its message very plainly, very clearly. And so we cast our cares upon you knowing that you care for us. For I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.